Hello and welcome to the Magician and the Fool podcast. This is episode number 15. My name is Dominic and my co-host's name is Janice and you will hear from him a little bit later. Today's episode, we will be talking to Sasha Cheto. Sasha is a PhD and she's a British Greek artist, author, gallery owner, and independent scholar. Um, This is all coming from Sasha's website. Um, And this is the condensed version. There's a lot more. Sasha's a really exceptional and busy lady. Um, You can find this on sashacheto.co.uk. Sasha the Academic, she holds two master's degrees in English literature and in cultural history. She was awarded her PhD in cultural history from the University of Essex in 2014. Her work on Josephine Peladon is the result of her PhD research, which focuses on Peladon's life and work. It comprises a full-scale review of his work in the context of the history of Western esotericism and an attempt to re-examine and, where necessary, rehabilitate the man and his work. Her research interests involve the interdisciplinary study of the relationships of philosophy and esoteric thought with art and wider culture. Sasha the Artist. She trained in the Fine Arts Department of the School of Art in Athens, Greece. Um, Between 2000 and 2009, she held six solo exhibitions in Corfu and Athens, Having completed her PhD in 2014, she returned to full-time painting and established Icon Gallery in the old town of Corfu, aiming to provide a showcase for local artists. Again, you can find out about her on sashacheto.co.uk. Now we're going to be talking about uh, Sasha's work, but we're also going to be talking on Josephine Peladon. Peladon was an eccentric and visionary French occultist and prolific author who was influential at the end of the 19th century. In 1890, he established the Order of the Catholic Rose Cross. In 1892, he launched an annual art exhibition called the Salon of the Rose Cross, which embraced the symbolist movement. His overarching goal was to use art in all its expressions as a transformative and redemptive medium for the goal of societal enlightenment and evolution, in a nutshell. We hope you really enjoyed this episode. We are here with Sasha Cheto to talk about um, a lot of things. On a broad scale, we're going to talk about art and the magic of art and a little bit about her art and her story, her journey. And we're also going to talk about uh, a lesser known uh, 19th century French occultist, uh, Peladon. And she is kind of an expert in that. Welcome to the show, Sasha. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. We're honored to have you here. Um, and with yeah, us, definitely. Yep, and there's Janice. Janice, <laughs> how are you? you. 
Oh, I'm very well, thank you. Okay, so Sasha, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey? Um, you were an artist first before you were an academic, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, well, I, the, I first started out going to art school in Athens, Greece, um, and pretty quickly realized that uh, for a start, uh, I wasn't happy with the way the schools wanted to mold us here. They were very um, attached to kind of modernist line and uh, style and school, and there wasn't much room for experimentation. It was a very kind of uh, closed mind, narrow-minded approach. Um, so I, I'm, I stuck it out for a couple of years, but then I eventually just switched to academia and I kept painting uh, independently. I, I had already studied alongside a couple of um, very well-known artists. So I, I already had quite a bit of training and decided to take a kind of more, you know, real world approach um, and initially just studied communications, journalism and PR um, alongside uh, painting and exhibiting. So um, that's how I started out. Um, but then I got bitten by the academic bug, I guess that just happens to some people. And I kept wanting to explore more. And one of the things that happened with my art was that I was intrigued by the idea of trying to tell stories through paintings. So I'd have a favorite uh, poem or a favorite song um, or a particular story. And I would try to use different kinds of symbolic languages to express those. But obviously I didn't have the background uh, to do, I, I, I kind of make it up as I went along. So then I began reading more. And um, the first thing that really sort of changed the way I wanted to paint was discovering uh, alchemical manuscripts and alchemical symbolism and realizing that there was this whole world, uh, this whole um, visual vocabulary, if you like, that I wanted to learn more about. And that's how I ended up studying Western esotericism. Um, I did the Exeter MA in the UK under Nicholas Goodrick Clark. It was a very, very special program. And then I went off and did a PhD in Western esotericism. So um, oh, no, somehow, no. yeah. So uh, somehow I just got. Um, not dragged into academia, but sucked into academia, which I also enjoyed. Um, and But for a good 10 years, and there I was painting less and less. But um, I kind of drew it all together in the end. And for my PhD, which I guess you can ask me about in a bit, I'll, I um, focused on the sort of intersection between art and esotericism. And then when I was finally done with that back in 2014, I returned to full-time painting which is what I've been doing since then, really. Awesome. Now, did you find Peladon when you were uh, an artist before you became more uh, involved in academia? Or did you find him when you were in academia and that brought you back into art? Yes. Um, no, it was the second um, version of that. I was uh, looking around for an idea, for um, a good topic to do for my PhD. And initially what I wanted to do was the symbolism in Greek icons and to explore the esoteric content within those. 
but um, well, for one reason and another, there were um, issues involved. The university didn't have somebody with the appropriate um, background to supervise me. I didn't want to leave the university at the time, although I actually did in the end. I switched halfway through. Um, I, I didn't do that because there was um, I didn't have the support for it. And so um, my supervisor suggested that I look at the symbolists based on my interests and based also on my languages, because I already had good French. And it turned out that nobody had looked at this peculiar guy, Peladan. I'd seen him in a footnote when I was doing the movie MA at Exeter. And I just kind of figured, like everybody else, that he was a complete nutcase and not worth my time. Well, <laughs> and I ended up spending uh, five good years on him. <laughs> well, actually more than that now. So getting on for 10 good years. I, I'm now spent on Peladan. <laughs> so, Nutcases will do that to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed. <laughs> I, but, but, yeah, but as I said, one of the things I tried to do with all that was to rehabilitate him. Um, and to kind of really take an in-depth look at his work. And I then gathered, actually, he wasn't as much of a nutcase as people made out, after all. And he gave me a hell of an impetus to get back into the arts. So. Well, it's interesting That's to me because... Well, I was going to say, you, even though you may not have had the visual vocabulary yet from the earlier sources, I mean, it seems like from the start you were sort of uh, inherently proto-symbolist in your inclination toward the creation of artwork it's like you had the mindset even before you found the movement that's true no that's absolutely true and i mean i'm i haven't put all my early work online because quite honestly it's terrible technically um uh, i know it's terrible technically but i was more interested in content i was more interested in composition and in getting those ideas down so yeah I'd, I'd agree with that. I'm, I'm glad someone else can see that. <laughs> but you did, you did end up going back to the traditional Greek icons, as we were talking about before. Um, and maybe we can touch on, on them later. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, certainly. Yeah, because that's fascinating in itself. And your original idea for a thesis would have been, or for a, uh, a topic would have been fascinating with, with the iconography and the history um, hey, I may do it yet. You never know. There you go. <laughs> um, so let's let's talk about Peladon, uh, Peladon a little bit um, mm -hmm. because I wasn't very familiar with him before before this, but I I'm finding him very intriguing, um, and and the way you express, that's the right word yeah <laughs> and the way that you that's express the, right the way you're expressing um, his whole paradigm is is very makes it all the more interesting. Um, because I could tell that you really got deep into into his symbolic language and you know his perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us a little about him, um, the man himself, and then we can get a little bit more into his metaphysics. And if if I could just briefly interject, like sure. the crazy thing about Peladon is that you will hit him if you like you you come across him if you're interested in. Like if you get into symbolist art or the decadent movement, you'll eventually run into Peladon's name. If you're into Rosicrucianism, you're going to hit Peladon's name. If you're into the just the you know French culture at that time, the fin de siècle culture, you're going to run into Peladon. So he's a personal hero of mine, and it always struck me as strange how little press he gets and how 
how unknown he is relatively because he was actually a kind of a this sort of nexus of multiple things that were going on multiple movements he was an important person really yeah that's all true and um i think one of the key reasons for his him not being so well known and i would say among english speaking cultures particularly is because his work was never translated into english um there is one one set um of plays and i think it's actually a translation peladan translated from something else and it ended up in english um i'm not i can't remember the details now there is nothing of peladan's in english to date except for some excerpts that i've published online and um there may be more coming i'll just leave that with you but there may be more coming um <clears throat> if i can ever get sort my workload out um but one of the key reasons would have been in the uk at the time you had the pre-raphaelites you had all sorts of things going on um okay peladan was an incredible eccentric but i don't think that that is reason enough for him to have been just kind of consigned to oblivion because his work was translated into italian into german into swedish strindberg uh, admired him greatly i mean he was i won't say he certainly wasn't mainstream but he was picked up by the by mainstream the mainstream in other um countries just not in the english language and he also had a huge influence believe it or not on latin american modernist uh, literature yeah Yes. Chile. Interesting. Uh, yes. So um and there's a very very peculiar Rosicrucian line and I'm probably going to get this wrong because it's off the top of my head. But there's a very peculiar Rosicrucian line claiming to derive directly from Paladin that actually goes through Latin America and then comes back then goes to the states if I'm not mistaken. Don't ask me for more details off the top of my head, but I can look it up for you. Um, so yes, um, that's that's why he's not so well known in the sort of Anglo-American world. Um, now, as for what, as for the man himself, well, he was a visionary. I mean, he was one of those, you know, the completely crazy visionary artist types who really did believe that he could somehow impact um the society he was in but he was a complete he was a complete rebel he was a, he was a complete troublemaker and he did meet with a lot of ridicule during his lifetime he also had a very very faithful and loyal and strong following um in his lifetime and uh, i think after he died but okay after he died i think that uh, people cherry picked what they wanted to keep of his work um and also and also his work itself is not easy it is not easy i mean i can't tell you the number of times i've sat down with my publisher and kind of discussed well shall we do an anthology shall we pick this work shall we pick that work and and i've said every time guys i'm going to have to annotate this page by page to actually to, to get people to he spoke his own language paladin so for all those reasons it you know it was a period of many changes a lot of art being made a lot of literature good literature coming out and this was one man's completely utopian vision for a different world 
that kind of fell by the wayside, but not completely, but not completely. And that's kind of what I picked up a hundred years after the artery died. You had mentioned in, in one of your talks that um, his ideas may not have come across to the English speaking world with his name on it, but they came across. Um, yes. Well, some of them did. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of them did. Well, there's two things. Basically, what some people would recognize, and I'm not for a minute saying that Jung even knew who Peladan was, but people, I think listeners may recognize this, the idea of self-determination and individuation. It, it is a really easy way to understand what Peladan was trying to do. But he did it in too many words, um, if you like, and too much color. Now, on the occult side of things, well, um, what what is it? Love is the law. Um, how does that go? Um, is this the Crowley? The, the Crowleys, yes. Um, and love under will, that's it. Right. Uh, and the whole idea of will. Well, let me tell you, Crowley got that from somewhere. And if you take it, all you need to do is take a look at, I'm, yeah, I'm saying, I'm going to say this on a, why not? I've said it at a conference, isn't it? <laughs> um, the, no, but the, the um, there are references and they were drinking, of course, from the same cup, same period, same sort of uh, milieu. But um, there are, Crowley was very careful to discredit Peladan wherever he could and to really sort of sling mud at his name. Um, but it's quite interesting how some of Paladin's ideas have made it into, you know, Crowley's work. Well, anything good in Crowley is taken from people with talent. Well, oh, well, <laughs> there you go then. Um, but it so the ideas, some of these ideas did travel and we do see some other influences. And again, the idea of sort of, of um, the artist as priest, the artist as uh, sort of ritual director. This is not a new idea. This goes back centuries. Um, it's just that it all kind of, the, in, in Paladin's work, all of this is kind of the pinnacle, if you like, of um, a very, very carefully put together and thorough worldview and cosmology i mean it's the it's the works it's he's literally created a cosmology and everything that goes with it um and which ends in the artist as priest who can transform reality and by doing so pass that ability on to whoever's watching and listening that's awesome and the more um i've been reading about him and his cosmology if you were to say that he was a third century Gnostic and I didn't know anything else about him, I would have believed it because he is um, taking these elements of uh, kind of Judeo-Christian elements. Uh, there's, there's stuff that's very rem reminiscent of the book of Enoch. Um, and then there's the Neoplatonism, of course, or the Platonism. And that goes hand in hand with Gnosticism typically. So he's definitely on this same wavelength. Um, and it, he, for his time in the 19th century, that was kind of radical stuff. Yes um, uh, and no. Um, yeah. Ra well, yeah, not for that milieu, yes. Radical in general, you're quite right. Um, although I would kind of hesitate to call him a total Gnostic because yeah. he didn't see matter as evil. He saw it as um, a, necess a necessity in a way 
because within his cosmology, matter was the result of, um, oh goodness, I'm going to get into this now. So matter was the result of this kind of the angels creating something in their own image, which they then went and fell in love with. And because he he put that, so this is his version of original sin, sin and the fall, he puts it down not to uh, the sort of whole Luciferian pride kind of thing, but because the spirit, spiritual sort of realm simply could not hold, it, it's, it's a twist on Gnosticism, you see, simply could not hold um, the angelic substance um, pouring itself into a different kind of shape. And that's where the fall occurred. So it, it, it's, he, he tries to soften um, the whole idea of the fall. He tries to soften the whole idea of original sin and the whole idea of um, Lucifer as the evil Satan. He tries to, in a way, redeem Lucifer in his own way. Um, and he, he spends a lot of pages trying to justify this theologically as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. And art is a tool for redemption in his, in his view. Art is a tool for redemption because it reflects the creator. It reflects the creative process. And that's what the angels were trying to do and basically messed up. And so in Paladin's whole worldview, both angels and humans fell, but, that, but humans were then given free will, which angels could not have because they'd already been created as they were. And so it was now up to humans to, to then reflect that creative process all over again. And by doing so, eventually raise the, the spiritual level of humanity to a point where there would be this return to the divine source and both angels and uh, both the fallen angels and humanity could finally be free. But it, it had to go through that cycle first and it would only be achieved in Paladin's um, thinking once the whole of humanity had collectively risen to another spiritual level. It's interesting because it sort of reminds, it sort of almost seems like a synthesis between the um, narrative in the, in the hermetic cosmogenesis where man falls in love with nature and then descends and becomes enwrapped with nature combined with the Lurianic description of, um, you know the the create the phases of creation of the reality and how the light was broken and fell because the tree couldn't handle it. It's it's an interesting synthesis, and then mm -hmm. then you also have this element of almost Platonic eros in there. Yep. You know, it, it's just it's 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 amazing, and one has to almost when I mean what what I've been able to learn of Paladin and his ideas you almost he almost seems divinely inspired to me at times because he connects things that there's no there's no there's there's things that he writes that you don't see anywhere else that he makes these connections that make sense but where did it come from well if you asked him he would tell you that not only he would agree that it was divinely inspired he believed that when the angels fell or were so were cast to earth together with their creation, which is us apparently, um, 
they were given the choice and and, and there's this beautiful beautiful little um sort of it is written as a dialogue as a play uh, and as a narrative it's very it's very strange he wrote very strangely but um telling the whole story of the beginnings of all this and um saying that the fallen angels or lucifer was given the choice either stay celibate as a race and die out or that they were sent here with the order to raise the human consciousness or interbreed with humans and um as the story goes, as Peladan's story goes, some chose one route, some chose the other route. And um, so Peladan says that he he believed that the angelic consciousness, that they did interbreed with humans and the angelic consciousness was passed down. And you can see the evidence of that in the bright lights of civilization. And he was absolutely positive that Plato, for example, was one of the great um, angelic descendants and he believed that that's also that he had also taken a part of that essence um, and you're absolutely right also about the connections that he he drew because he he was very deeply read I mean he was extremely well read and you're also right about the Lurianic Kabbalah because he did study Kabbalah deeply and he studied Jewish Kabbalah not the Christian Kabbalah of the 17th century he sort of started there but then worked backwards and he did consult with rabbis and he did look deeply, quite, quite deeply into that. And the, the, there's not a lot of documentation to show what his sources were, but the reflections of Lurianic Kabbalah in particular are there. And there is mention of the Sephiroth and the kind of parallels that he draws with many other systems. And the reason for that is uh, he did it, he used Greek, um, the Greek um, mythology and theogony as well as alongside Assyrian mythology. And he looked at the Egyptians as well. There's this book um, called Antiquité Orientale. It's not translated into English. It's, it, um, as far as I know, it only exists in French, um, in which he actually looked at all these different cultures and drew the parallels because in his mind, the um, angelic guides that had been sent down to sort of raise humanity up were the incarnations of the great um, mythical leaders and guides and teachers of humanity. So, for example, he believes that the, um, the, the, the deities in the Greek pantheon or in the Assyrian pantheon were actually the real fallen angels given, um, given form as it were. So he looked to those parallels, believing that those were the true original teachings that humanity had to refer to in order to work out, A, what had happened, what, what, what we were doing here, and B, what the route was for a return to um, the divine. Cool. And he was very well read. I mean, he he did look at Plato pretty, it seems like he was really, really looking at Plato. Um, I think I had also read that you had written, um, he was influenced by Agrippa as well, um, Philo of Alexandria. I, th I think it was in one of your papers. Um, yeah. And he had, he did have access to the Zohar as well. He did. He did. Um, and I mean, it's, it's a classic example of um, syncretism, what we call syncretism, doing a sort of um, combination of readings of different sources and trying to map the similarities onto each other, which 
this this also kind of comes out of um, a different way of studying um, of that in Paladin's time was already dying as a as a method of knowledge, as it were, uh, because this was when Enlightenment um, logic and rationalism had taken over. But there was an earlier tradition um, of, well, you find it in a grip of it, you find it in, in other very influential thinkers as well, um, of what we call kind of a philosophical approach to history, which is not to take history as fact, but to take it as symbolic information that then needs to be connected to other similar ideas. Um, it's a bit complicated, <laughs> a bit like magical thinking, but that is what he did with it. I would say it's sort of a symbolist way of thinking. It is. It, it is. I mean, that's what symbolism rests on in many ways. It's, uh, it's pre-modern. Essentially, it's pre-modern and it's pre-enlightenment. And it comes out of the counter-enlightenment movement against rationalism, essentially. Which is a beautiful thing, and I wish it had gotten more traction. <laughs> I, I want to mention it. You know, I would say that obviously, if Pal if Sar Paladon saw himself as the incarnation or, or the descendant of a particular principle, it would probably be the sort of Jupiterian principle, since he went by the name um, Sar Merodach, right? Well, that would be the parallel. Yes, that would be the parallel. Um, but I mean, you know, it's funny. Of course, those that he's best remembered for taking on that persona. But even that, it wasn't, um, I mean, he was. it was usually just uh, considered um, megalomania or sort of grandiloquence and <laughs> part of his eccentricity. But as he explained it, um, it was part of what he called the theory of um, what he called caloprosopia, the art of personality, that if you attempted to channel and um, embody if you like, the principles and the ideals that you wanted to stand for, eventually you would actually absorb some of those um, characteristics. Mm -hmm. And to be, to be honest, after, probably after the turn of the century when he felt that he'd completely messed up and he realised that everybody thought he was just an arrogant fool, he actually um, completely turned his back on all that and said, what a fool I've been, and kind of tried to deny and reject um, a lot of what he had done. But uh, truth be told, that was some of his best work. And there's a lot of work there that actually did make sense from a certain perspective. And that had a huge, huge impact on the art scene of his time. So. It's very interesting to contemplate. And it almost seems as though that was just probably the response to years of being mocked. I mean, to me, it sounds a lot like two things. It sounds like the uh, you know, in later esotericism, there's the there's the idea of the assumption of the god form, where you take on the attributes of the god, you dress like the god, you act like the god to invoke the god, which is what he was doing. And then that's also anybody who's ever been involved in drama, when you when you act, that's you're kind of doing the same thing with your character, and you do become the character if you're a good actor. And sometimes it destroys people like. I remember, not to get too far off topic, but uh, what was it? When Heath Ledger went to play the Joker, uh, Jack Nicholson warned him not to do the part. And it wasn't out of jealousy. It was out of 
like you need to be careful with this archetype because it will destroy you and that's what happened you know and i think there's a there's a significance there because drama i think i've always felt that all of the arts are implicitly connected to magical processes and techniques and again there's paladon's genius he saw this too and took it seriously he did and he wrote i mean he wrote whole handbooks um different ones for men for women and for artists um detailing in, in great detail um how this should be achieved and it should be done in a controlled way and it should never go to one's head. Uh, and this is where, I mean, this is where he proves uh, when, when I, I mean, I had to argue this point in an academic setting very hard and very strongly. Um, when my, for example, supervising professors would say to me, Oh, well, you've kind of gone native and you don't think he's an eccentric nutcase, but actually flamboyance. And I said, but look at his writing, look what the man is saying. If he's, He's actually teaching others that this is not how to go with it. Um, and if he was outspoken, well, he had a temper, so what? But uh, that's that's different from being um, actually, you know, insane. But you're, I, I just like to come back to your point about um, like the whole idea of ritual drama, sacred drama. Absolutely, absolutely true. But there's a key point which I think is particularly interesting and which differentiates Paladin from the other occultists of the period and of his time that this was not done within a ritual circle. This was not done behind closed doors. And this was not done as part of a structured fraternal um, setting, which is what where we normally see this kind of thing. Nor even, well, he did write plays. It, he did use the theatre and experimented with it in the theatre. But for Paladin, the stage on which this were to, was to play out was real life. And that is what he advocated because he's he he was absolutely against this idea of secrecy and closed fraternities. For him, it all had to be out in the open. It all had to be um, people had to be brave enough to actually embody this in their everyday lives. And that is why he put his teachings out there in for each teaching. There's two or three different forms that he put it out in. So as a novel, as a symbolic uh, novel, say, uh, as a play, as an esoteric uh, theorem. And then in, through the artists he influenced, he didn't paint himself, but through those he influenced, it took different forms, these teachings, but it was meant to be out there in plain sight. That was, uh, and that was a huge difference. And that's why a lot of the other occultists of the time uh, vilified him because for them this was social capital this was something that had to be built um with a door sealed and so um this was another very important factor with Paladin. this was something to be lived for real yeah i was gonna yeah i, I was gonna mention that that must have made him some enemies in the esoteric community it did. because that's their bread and butter you know secrecy it did and one thing that Paladin realized was that those who are not ready to comprehend will not comprehend anyway. You know, I mean, Plato said that. <laughs> but it, it, um, yeah, I, it, in today's world and with today's kind of uh, sort of morality and the idea of, you know, equality and so on, a lot of what Paladin had to say will probably come across as anathema. We have to remember it belongs to a certain period, a certain time. 
And one of the things he was saying was that everybody had the ability to reach the same goal, but they had to open their eyes and ears first. They actually had to want to, and they actually had to put in the work. So although he did kind of um, develop these social hierarchies that he talked about, and these again are based on Plato, sort of the mob, the uneducated mob, and then people who were beginning to awaken, and then initiates, as Peladan perceived them, who were self-initiated through this process, um, he never denied, it. He, he never said that it, uh, there was anybody who couldn't achieve this, but people who didn't were either willfully ignorant um, or just not ready yet. So, Well, isn't that, isn't that the perennial question, really, in terms of, I mean, at least among, you know, whether you're talking in a platonic or a Gnostic sense, these divisions of consciousness between the, you know, the lower human the the intellectual and then the spiritual human are these hard lines or are these are these you know phases of development and even if they're phases of development can we really see one of the mob consciousness developing to the level of the spiritually awakened in one lifetime so then it, for practical purposes is that demarcation a concrete thing i mean i think that that's something that's worthy of contemplation and then uh one more thing is that you know, I think that Peladon had this sort of aristocratic character about him in a certain way. And that may have been due to the descent of something divine or the unfoldment of the divine principle within him, because that's, at least in a platonic sense, that's what awakens the nobility within you is the awakening of that divine spark. And, and so I think that he understood that and perhaps was trying to articulate that conferral of, of, the noble nature through the process that he was trying to impart to people. Now, how many people actually got what he was saying is another thing, I guess. It is another thing, but there's also something at the root of this that is where it's worth pointing out. Um, and again, I've been able to document this, um, that um, Paladin's all this theory, all this, all of this is actually built on the Rosicrucian manifestos. And it's actually built on the dictates um, set out, um, directed at the quote-unquote Rosicrucian Brotherhood, because as far as we know, that wasn't that never existed historically. It was something, it was an idea that began with the manifestos, in fact. Um, but there are some lines in there, for example, to um, help the sick and the needy and go about in plain clothes. Peladan didn't do that, but um, as in what, whatever the mores of um, your particular culture try to blend in and be part of that. Well, if you consider he was an art critic and organized art exhibitions, then I guess he did. Um, but his brother, who had initiated him originally, um, had been a doctor and he was known for helping uh, those who needed him without uh, taking money. And there were others within that very, very small initial circle who were known to have done the same. So um, it's almost as if Peladan, if you see him as a kind of soul doctor in his own mind, he was trying to impart his uh, gifts to everybody he could so that he would write novels for young ladies, for example, and slip his uh, ideas 
into a sort of uh, um, allegorical story, which on the surface of it is just a little romance for young ladies of the time. Um, you see, so it, it's funny, but it's um, I think that there's a, there's a lot to be said about the initial, the original Rosicrucian dictates being very much fueling his intentions and what he tried to do, but he got a bit carried away. <laughs> so he certainly wanted to spark like a, a social renaissance and he was, he was um, not too happy with the, the decadence of the day. No, I wonder how, I wonder how he would be today. You know, you've <laughs> with what we've got going on, he'd certainly be all over social media, most likely. Um, and be writing books and whatnot, websites. But uh, how do you think he would view what's what's going on presently? Oh, I th- I don't know. I think he'd uh, hang his head in despair. Mind you, a hundred years ago, he said the Western civilization is dying. We are witnessing. We are experiencing the death of the West. Well, here we are, a hundred years later. We've got a lot of people still saying that. Yeah. Um, the civilizations have this funny way of descending into something. Uh, uh, Negredo for a while, pardon my alchemical <laughs> reference a bit, um, and and then kind of re-emerging. And it's a uh, it, uh, hundred years of modernism, a hundred years of, uh, but since Paladin's time, I don't think the Western world at least is done with the conflicts that were born um, after or during the French Revolution that culminated in the whole social change that was brought, um, that came to a head with the First World War. Second World War was really a continuation of that in some ways. I don't think we're done with that yet in the West. I honestly don't think we're done with that. So if Paladin was witnessing today's world and the way we communicate today, either he'd do the exact same thing with the exact same results, which would be to become this kind of... um, you know, very eccentric figure, which you can get away with more nowadays and with a small following and kind of that would be that. Um, or he would go with the sort of grassroots type movements, which, and try to perhaps eat the system from the inside for all I know. You know, social media is a good way to do that. Keep it, keep it, keep your, you know, keep your head low, but um, just keep pushing the message out there in different ways. Could be either. It depends on what he learned from his experience last time. Yeah, I mean, that, that was an impossible question to answer, but um, thanks well, for trying. That was a good answer. Well, I, well, basically, uh, shall I, should I say that that's what I try to do? <laughs> <laughs> but, right. Um, anybody, I think, with ideals, you know, I can't tell you what Panadam would have done. I can tell you that what, it, what does anybody with ideals try and do today in the state of the world? You know, either either we're all going to sort of end up um, heavily medicated, um, or you know, we we see it a bit more philosophically, and we just attempt to influence our immediate sort of circle and do the best we can and take comfort from having touched what we could touch in one lifetime. Well, you know, what you were saying about. Paled on a minute ago made me think too that even though there's significant differences, I definitely think that there's some parallels between what he was trying to do and what the arts and crafts movement was trying to do. You know, William Morris, Dante yes. Gabriel Rossetti. Oh yes. Uh, I, I'm seeing 
I'm seeing a parallel spirit behind both. Peladan saw it too. Um, but the British uh, circles wouldn't give him the time of day. He wrote to <laughs> Ruskin loads of times. I mean, and he wrote to some of the pre-Raphaelites as well. He really wanted that connection. He invited them to participate in his salons. They just ignored him. <laughs> That's heartbreaking. It is. It is. But heaven only knows how it came across at the time. Because if you look at some of the newspapers of the time, unfortunately, um, you know what? Because remember, this is the this is the age of the birth of mass media, Heladan's time. Or it's been born. Uh, it's, been, it's been around for a few decades already by now. And imagine that news of this eccentric uh, Frenchman dressed in purple with a big hair was reaching New York as far as Australia, I found newspaper references. And every time it's as this crazy eccentric. There was one American journalist in 1892 who did a damn good interview and actually got what he was saying, but that was the one, the only one. So his fame did get as literally quite around the world thanks to the telegraph of uh, guess of the day but unfortunately it was that it, he had mismanaged his public image if you like so well another person that was inspired by the rosicrucian movement from around the same time that i think in terms of personality might have had some similarities to Peladon was uh Paschal beverly randolph Indeed, you know he because he he was also very outspoken to the point where he would get himself in huge trouble and have to leave places. And he was a he had strong ideas about the relationship between men and women and the equality between them both. And he was also very inspired by Rosicrucianism and a profound esotericist. So I I think it's interesting because there are parallels in their sort of bombastic personalities. It's true. It's true. And I mean, we're talking about a time of huge change on so many levels. I mean, it was I, I think it must have been similar to now in a way. You know, you, you're looking at this world in complete flux. None of us know this is not the world we knew 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Not even slightly. No OK. And I think we're, we're all old enough to remember 30 years ago. So uh, it, it, it was stable. It seemed stable. It was different. And um, Paladin had been born into a time where there was certainly more flux, and not just Paladin, but his contemporaries, because as you mentioned, um, but then that just kind of sped itself up by the last decade of the 19th century. It really sped itself up, and you've got all these things going on on so many levels. So, yeah, the big personalities, I guess, um, are the ones that we talk about today, but um, under the surface, I think there was a lot more going on. Um, and who knows what it was yeah. like to live at that time. Right. Um, can you speak a little bit more specifically about maybe his, his um, system of self-initiation? Because it wasn't, it wasn't secret. Um, nope. And maybe what his definition of, of magic, how did he define Okay, so I'll start with magic because that's what it rests on, which is basically yeah. the um, the ability to exercise one's will on oneself and achieve self-transformation. Um, and he basically, um, he, he threw out any other definition of magic, things like, you know, telekinesis and uh, magic wands and all that. 
um, total rubbish, he said. Um, it is all about changing the self and developing the self. And if you can't work magic on yourself, then you're just uh, deluding. You're just deluded. Um, and for him, this was to be achieved by this uh, very, I mean, okay, so it was different for men, women, and artists um, who were in a league of their own, as far as he was concerned. Um, for his handbook for young men, How to Become a Mage, um, has this very, very structured approach. Uh, and he has these lovely tables where he draws all these correspondences and parallels between Assyrian, um, the, the old Assyrian religion and Greek, um, the Greek uh, philosoph philosophers and um, Catholicism and so forth. But they all have the same end. I think it's a seven. It's First, it's seven steps, seven levels, followed by 12, followed by, I don't remember. <laughs> but um, all of these follow firstly planetary correspondences and then there's Kabbalistic correspondences and each time he kind of sets tasks for the um, reader and it just gets progressively more demanding as it were and he says don't go on to the next one until you have fully achieved the first one and you'll know within yourself when you've achieved it and he actually uses the um, cardinal virtues to wit but then he doesn't call them the cardinal virtues he draws them from the Greeks more um so that to, to achieve a balance in all things he, he makes very complicated something that doesn't need to be this complicated to be honest but i think he thought that by drawing all these systems together he could make it more powerful or more meaningful or and pr somehow prove that all these systems um were equally worthy and the ultimate aim was for ma um for men specifically to discover the divine qualities within their soul. And equally for women, the aim was the same because only then he said, um, could a truly awakened and self-aware man and a truly awakened and self-aware woman come together and repair the damage done when the primordial androgyne was broken and then sent down in two different bodies. Um, so that's his explanation, again, of the masculine-feminine polarity. But for women, and this is interesting, and this I would like to be heard, um, many, many writers have commented that Peladan was a misogynist. I don't know many misogynists, even by today's standards, um, and I'll say right now that I am not the greatest fan of, fan of radical feminist uh, thought, but I'll just leave that there. Um, but I don't know many misogynists by any definition who would write, who would put in writing that women have to break the chains that society has imposed on them. And this was Peladan writing, writing in 1893. Okay. And he would go on about how boarding schools and then the manners that young ladies were forced to, um, well, to learn and then to teach their daughters that this was what had destroyed women um, over the centuries and that he encouraged women. He, he wrote it differently. This didn't have such a structure to it. It was like he was aiming for a more emotional level, a more spiritual level when writing for women. But he would um, sort of 
call up images of um, ancient princesses and ancient warrioresses and Amazons and goddesses and say, find that within yourself because that is your true legacy. That is your true um, um, line of descent. And this he would say to women and said, until you, until you realize that and begin embodying it, you cannot truly stand beside an, an, a self-aware man. And um, yeah, I find that pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what was it that made people think he was a misogynist? Because, well, one of the things was that um, in his, he rewrote the book of Genesis to base his whole sort of cosmogony on. And so you do get Adam and Eve and the snake and Lucifer and with, with different names and some very, very analytical sort of, um, and quite difficult actually, esoteric theory in there. But one of the things he said was that when the primordial androgyne that the angels created was broken into two, male and female, he said, it has, it has been interpreted as if he said that women did not get an intellect, but that's not what he said. I mean, what he, what he was trying to say was that the, uh, again, this is following very much, I think, the Lurianic, uh, or and actually not just Lurianic, but the Kabbalistic theory of the soul. And that also rests on uh, the Neoplatonist theory of the soul being in three parts. Um, and to his, uh, to his understanding, um, men were granted some parts, women were granted some parts, and this represented the broken two broken halves that could only um, become whole when joined together again. And that this is why both men and women had to um, become self-aware separately and only then join again. But this was read as if he was saying basically that women had no intellect. Also, um, he refused women artists entry to his salons. There were a few other things which one could question. but basically, again, it rests on his belief that that's not what women have to do. Women have to be the motive force. Women have to be the will and the passion that would guide the process forward. And that men were only good enough for doing the sort of um, hands-on part of that. So, <laughs> you know. So I, th- I think you described them as muses being equivalent to like a muse, the women. Yes, but not in the passive sense. Uh, because yeah, we, all, we, yeah. often, we can say that and it kind of, it just brings to my mind sort of this pale, fading beauty, sort of uh, gazing uh, adoringly at a man. Muses, <laughs> but in the sense, and, and this is in Rai, Peladan has written this, um, in the sense of showing men what they can become. Uh, in the way a goddess would. Uh, that's how he puts it, you see. Um, I don't see a lot wrong with that, but it's how it's interpreted yeah. and how it's used. Well, there's certainly a parallel in um, tantrism where, you know, uh, women embody the Shakti and right. men embody Shiva. Or or even in the, I mean, a lot of what you're saying about Peladon's thought in this regard resembles closely Simon Magus's teachings. Mm-hmm. I mean, Simon of Samaria taught very similar things. And the male Aeon was called mind, but the female was called thought. And the female was the dynamic act of the two so you know maybe if people could get off of their political soapboxes and realize that these are deeper things than that 
you know, and realize that these are pe these people were trying to translate into limited linear language these these profound, I guess you could say, esoteric uh, realities. I mean, it seems like Peladon was speaking not only from study but maybe from some experience. And if we have a whole sort of uh, system like in Hindu Tantra based on these ideas that seems to work quite well for people, you know, maybe there's something to it. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, and it, like I say, it's how it's interpreted and it has to be contextualized. It has to be um, put in its right context. I'll also say his father, Paladin's father, was a great um, scholar, amateur scholar, certainly an amateur scholar, but of uh, world mythology and he went along the lines of trying to collate sort of all the similarities between different mythologies he was after something else he was a very very devout catholic peladan's father and was was actually doing this to try to prove that um the coming of the messiah had been foreseen to prove the divinity of jesus but that even so peladan was exposed to all of this in his uh, childhood home and at the time it, the um, a lot of the things that Peladan's father and brother were looking at involved Indian and Chinese mythology and thought. So um, you're onto something there. <laughs> I think you're onto something. Well, there. well, given that, so given that Catholic background, um, maybe this would be a good point to segue into. Like maybe that was part of the reason for the uh, the fissure that ended up developing into the quote-unquote, War of the Roses between him and de Guaita? No, it's not the Catholic background. Because, again, you will find most writers, this is why I should be on with publishing at some point, but you will find that most writers on Peladan kind of make a thing of his um, Catholic faith. In actual fact, um, he very, very openly um, cast uh, doubt on Catholic theology and and was far clo more closely aligned to Orthodox theology. And again, he wrote a lot about this and that there's um, many places where he openly disagrees with um, the way the Catholic Church interpreted a lot of um, a lot of theological points. As to um, Stanislas de Gaeta and Papus and the sort of uh, notorious War of the Rose. Um, the um, I guess you may be referring to the use of the word Catholic in the different orders' names. Would that be why? Um, yes, and it, it, it does okay. seem like one of, and it also seems like one of them wanted to go in more of a. I hate the word pagan, but you know, more of a more of a pagan esotericism, and the other wanted to go in a more Christian direction. At least well, that's how it's framed. It is. It is how it's framed. It's not how it was. So what actually happened was, for a start, and again, there is documentation to this effect, that Peladan, he explains it very clearly, actually. He never used the word Catholic to mean Roman Catholic. He used it in the Greek sense of the word to mean universal. Because the old meaning of the word Catholic, and I speak Greek, so I can <laughs> confirm this, is um, it means universal. It's like saying the universalist church or something. Okay, it was the universalist order. It's all embracing, all encompassing. That's what he meant. That's what, that's what his usage meant. And he did clarify this. 
And as for the splits, the splits that came in the order, there were a couple of reasons. One was the secrecy. Another was he did not like Freemasonry and he did not like Martinism. And if if you've got any Martinists listening, um, (laughs) then I'm sorry to say that. But because precisely because he disliked this concept of closed orders and because he did not agree with Catholic theology on many, many counts, he also did not agree with this idea of a strongly religious um, system. So it's not Paladin who pushed for that. It's Paladin who didn't want that and who further did not like the inclusion of Masonic elements, because what Papus and de Gaeta were trying to do was to create this, again, universal school, as it were, of all esoteric orders in one. That's what they were aiming for. But Peladan felt that that was diluting the Rosicrucian essence of what he wanted to do, which had to be out in the world. And that's where the real split came. Um, and precisely because he had initiated de Gaeta, so who was in his direct lineage, um, he then felt this was a betrayal of what he had um, wanted to do. So that's why he broke away. This is why we need more We're writing from Sasha Chato on this subject out I'm sorry. there. <laughs> I, I work a 15-hour day. I don't have time. <laughs> no one day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was in contact with my publisher tonight. Um, this is the fourth time I've promised a deadline. We'll see. It's my fault. It's absolutely my fault. I have a publisher waiting. It's just um, I've had a lot going on in my own life recently. So Totally understandable. So let's move away from Peladon uh, specifically and maybe move into maybe how, how has he, your study of his works and his thought, uh, how has that influenced your art? Okay, good question. So um, it gave me it gave me a purpose in some ways. It opens up so many symbolic vocabularies for me. It gave me so many ideas and images to play with. But more importantly, um, it gave me the structure in my head so that I could do that. Because yes, you mentioned much earlier, sort of my. Uh, dab my proto-symbolic as it were work which is when I was what 20 years old and hadn't read that much um but with uh, having come the full circle um with Paladin I, I just had this amazingly rich source of ideas so the first thing I did was starting to experiment after well not even uh, it was this was before I finished the PhD um was to say okay i'm going to take different ideas of peladans and see if i can turn those into pictures and that was a great project that was fun that was the, i did that for fun i never intended to show it i did end up showing it and um those pieces are out in the world now but um so it 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 showed it, it really taught me how to illustrate an idea not as a book illustration, but actually with every symbolic element playing a part. So it really plays with the, with the viewer, with the audience, because that's the other thing. In order to, for me to be able to explain what Peladan was trying to do, um, I had to understand how was this meant to work from the other side? Never mind what he told his artists to do. How was this meant to work for the unsuspecting viewer? 
what was meant to happen when people walked into these galleries? You know, did you just look at something and it miraculously jumped into your head? Something had to happen. And what what happened essentially was this, um, it's not, again, it's not a new idea. It goes all the way back to Thomas Aquinas. This kind of dialectic, silent dialogue with a symbolic image whereby you only understand it when you begin internalizing parts of it by giving meaning to it. So you sit there looking at it, puzzling, and then suddenly something clicks and then you unravel the puzzle. And at that point, it's become part of you. And that's the magic of how he hoped it would influence people. So I started using that trick a lot in my art and I'm, I don't think I'll ever get tired of it actually. <laughs> um, it's difficult for some, but it's um, when you tell people just start hook onto one thing in an image and start asking yourself questions you see that there's something goes a light goes on in their eyes and i love to do that um so that's where it's taken me not to go on uh too much of a tangent it's it's definitely um, related but i wanted to maybe touch on this symbolic significance of the sphinx Mm -hmm. with with you and with paladon and maybe what the sphinx means because it's i see it a lot well, to me originally, and again, this is my Greek background coming out, it was um, simply a kind of numinous guardian of a threshold. That's what it is in Greek mythology, and that's what it always was to me. To Peladon, it was that and more, because the Sphinx embodied the, um, what's the, word I want? the fusion of um, the animal and the spiritual nature. Um, particularly as embodied by a woman. But then he did also talk about the androgyno sphinx, which is the sphinx with a beard, which then embodies the not only the um, reconnecting of the androgyne, of the two parts of the androgyne, but also with the with both animal, um, in other words, earthly um, essence as well, but also divine because, of course, it's a magical creature and it has wings, or in, in his uh, book it did. So it's this symbol that just everything comes together within, and it's a guardian and a very dangerous one. <laughs> cool. So I have some other things I'd like to touch on. Janice, do you have any questions or anything else you want to talk about that we didn't cover? I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day, but... yeah. Um, it sounds to me like the process you're describing through the uh, symbolist approach, especially as inspired by Paladon, it's sort of the idea is sort of to the art is almost it's almost like based on the idea of the logos because the art becomes a seminal principle, and then the mind once it grasps that principle gestates it and gives birth to its own form of it, which which is unique to the mind. So the mind almost becomes as a womb for the symbol to give birth or to give birth to the symbol. Would you say that's close? That's exactly what it is because that, um, again, and again, if you look at uh, Plato's theory of forms, theory of ideas, um, although it's often said that Plato was negative towards the idea of art because it was was removed from the idea, Paladin's take on this was, Yes, but when you're so far removed from the idea, you don't even know it's there anymore, you've got to give people a hook to go back to it. So you start with the symbol and then exactly what you described 
is meant to happen. So, um, yes, uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> what, the, what other advice would you have for maybe um, esoteric artists out there, how they can work with symbolism, how they can start working with symbolism? What's, what's the step one? Oh, I don't know if I can even answer that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that because you've got to have something you want to say. You've got to have yeah. something you want to show. And there's symbolist art, which is beautiful, but decorative. Um, and it really has to have a very strong intellectual foundation. Symbolist art is fundamentally intellectual, um, which is why we do see in in historic symbolist art, there's like a very, very wide range of technical quality because it was secondary and it wasn't necessarily meant to be decoratively beautiful. Or, and it's sometimes it was, can be very discomforting because it's the content that matters. Um, but I think the artist has to have a very good grasp of uh, the ideas that they want to communicate and why they want well, why do they want to say what they want to say I mean fine when I'm telling Paladin's story I'm telling it because um, well nobody's told it before um, so when I use images to do that to kind of illustrate his ideas a lot of the time it's easier to illustrate them than to explain them in words because they're so deep they're so layered um, so from there Okay, I do have classical art training as well, so I'll I would kind of say composition matters a lot, and you need to give people hooks, but you need to give them riddles as well. So composition and technique matter. Now, from there, it's about keeping the idea of artistic harmony and artistic quality because the eye does want something visually intriguing and visually beautiful, um, and not so abstract that it's meaningless. But from there, each individual artist will be interested in their own direction. So I can't give much more than that. I think that was a fantastic answer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, I, this brought something to mind. You know, it seems to me like when it comes to esoteric artists, whether we're talking about you, Paladon, or whether we're talking about Rosaline Norton or Austin Osmond Spar, there is a consistent symbolist theme, but there is also the the sort of sister school of the surrealists and there's significant differences between surrealism and symbolism and surrealism's seen a lot more press and it's become it's it's a lot more popular and probably will always be uh more popular than symbolist art do you what's your what's your opinion on that relationship between symbolism and surrealism because there are points of overlap there are visual points of overlap because the symbolists started putting odd things together before the surrealists did. However, there's a huge difference in the philosophy, the underpinning philosophy, because the symbolist artists gave themselves up to higher ideals. You asked me before, what would I say to a symbolist artist where to start? You've got to have something you want to say, and it's intellectual. It is not emotional. But when it comes to surrealism, the way the surrealist movement began um, historically, it was far more on a modernist bent, which was about basically the individual experience. So Dali would wake up in the morning and paint his dreams. Now, they may not have meant anything to anyone, but Dali and those who knew him well, and that was fine. And because at that point in time, we're into the whole sort of Jungian psychology and 
all about the individual, that's fine. But there's it's a fragmentation that happens by the time we get to surrealism. It's um, there is no unifying vision or ideal. It's just intriguing, often beautiful, but ultimately it's just about that individual artist's personal feelings. It's jumped out of expressionism essentially, and um, I'm not going to knock it as a school or as a um, as as a movement. But personally speaking, and I speak only for myself here, I need art to tickle my brain as well. It's it's not enough for me to just look at one individual artist's personal feelings um, because there may be a universal experience that we can share there, but it's for, for several decades within the 20th century, that was completely fragmented. It was completely the cult of the individual. And that's lovely artistically, some amazing artists come out of it, but it doesn't for me have a, any kind of unifying factor. Again, that's I completely personal agree. Taste. I completely agree. There's an inherent narcissism to it. Well, I mean, these were troubled people also, some of them. And there's not, again, uh, you know, that's why I say I don't want to knock it exactly. But um, looking at something that I know is the product of somebody's indigestion the night before really will only take me so long after admiring the technique and all the rest of it. Um, whereas when I know that it's kind of inspired by something that's taken a lot of thought and a lot of kind of mental work to get them to a particular place, I will look at it differently. And that is personal, um, but that's my take on it. I guess there's also the personal experience of indigestion amongst all of us. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that universal, you mean, yeah. Certainly. <laughs> certainly. <laughs> so what about um, stepping into a little bit of a different direction, The uh, your work with icons? So you have a, a gallery in Greece called Icon. I have two galleries in Greece. Okay, two galleries in Greece. One <laughs> of them is called Icon. Um, One of them is called, yeah, Icon indeed. And so you, you have um, some history with Icons. And so can you tell us a little bit about this work with Icons? And yeah, a little bit about what... So, okay, sorry. Um, yeah, so Icons... Um, well, as I mentioned, I think before we started uh, recording, uh, I've grown up, my mother's Greek, and I've spent pretty much half my life in Greece. So I've grown up around the Greek Orthodox tradition of icons. And for many years, it was just something that was just there. It wasn't really um, anything more than that. But in fact, um, icons have a very, very special history. And interestingly enough, they are a survival, they are almost a direct survival of a tradition, of, of a pre-Christian tradition, which has to do with the, um, when, when the ancient Greeks were building statues as vessels for the deity to um, enter into and visit. Um, icons are seen very much the same way. They're vessels. They're not uh, simply images, that, which is why they're so very, very heavily stylized. And there's a very strong theology, a theological explanation behind that, which actually rests on the back of Neoplatonic thoughts, so, which is quite interesting. So the Greek Orthodox Church contains many ancient survivals. And um, I'd probably be stoned if I said that out in the street right now but uh, uh, in fact um, it's that's that's why the history fascinated me that's why I wanted to study that originally um, 
So how did I end up painting icons? Well, before I went to art college, I spent a couple of years in in an artist's kind of training workshop where I was preparing for the art college entrance exams, but um, they also did teach icon paint, traditional icon painting with a traditional technique. So I picked up a lot there, even though I wasn't actually doing much of it myself. And um, precisely because it's a tradition that, well, um, when done properly, as it were, it, it there are very specific rules about the colours, about the figures, about how the placement, every little detail matters. All of it is not exactly prescribed. The artist, the, the iconographer has a lot of freedom, but it's freedom within certain boundaries as well. So um, when my partner and I decided to open I, the first gallery, which was, which is Icon Gallery, we wanted it to really represent Greek tradition. And we know that this, as a tradition, it's not dying out exactly, but you walk down the street of an average Greek tourist uh, destination and you will see many, many printed icons. You'll see a lot of just cheap fakes. And we wanted to support the people still doing this the real way. Um, so I made my own collection of these and so we began working with some other artists and, uh, getting them to, um, create work for this gallery. And the more I did it, this was straight after about 10 years of having barely painted at all. It just became this great retraining for me through which I discovered not only technique, um, but again, yet another symbolic language that I've kind of been born into and not paid enough attention to. But now I had the tools to understand it and use it my own way. So that's how that started. And since then, I've kind of moved on, but I've done a lot of research into the kind of the background of the content and the symbolism of icons. Can you speak a little a little bit more about that? Um about the, the the history of the icons, the Neoplatonic okay. context. So, um, well, I mean, again, it starts with it starts with the same um, principles that underlie the use of talismans, which is that like attracts like, and the same principles that, as I said, um, are used in um, ancient Greek uh, stat- ritual statues. Now, initially, icons were began to be created in the early Christian era uh, because they were portable, because they could tell the story, because they could be painted initially in the catacombs and they could be there as a kind of point of reference for this new religion. Um, and they became incredibly popular and a lot of the arts forms they used were drawn directly from ancient Greek styles. And interestingly, there's um, a strange um, fusion with some Egyptian uh, ritual art as well, which we, I don't know if you've come across the Fayum portraits, which are the death masks, the death portraits found in the city of Fayum in Egypt. Now, um, this was a, you'll see where I'm going. This is a, it's a bit of a, um, scenic route, but you asked for it. So, um, <laughs> um, Fayum was bo- um, was inhabited by both Greeks and Egyptians, 
And although the people that are there um, looked like more like Greek Roman, more like Greek Romans in their, their style, they were basically emulating them. The religion was Egyptian. So um, for a couple of hundred years, when they buried the, their dead, they still mummified them following the old Egyptian ways. But they had these painted um, sort of uh, masks, which were almost perfect, almost idealized portraits of uh, the person who had died. And they're beautiful. They're incredibly beautiful. And they have these big, big stylized eyes and slightly exaggerated details in the features. But this is off the back of the Egyptian idea that the body must not decay, the image must not decay. And for as long as the image does not decay, then the soul is safe. And that's one of the reasons that the Egyptians mummified their dead. Now, this somehow travels into Greece as a style. And so, in some ways, does the idea. Now, just leave that hold that thought but just keep in mind this idea of the portrait becoming the vessel for the spirit that has departed so icons very much become part of churches um, in early um, in early christian times and uh, before the catholic the split between the catholic and the orthodox church um, but around seven or eight hundred a.d um, the Byzantine, which is the, the so the Eastern uh, Roman Empire, essentially the Byzantine Empire, is beginning to have a lot of trouble on its eastern border um, with um, Arab, um, um, well, militaries basically. So tribes and uh, movements to try some exp expansionist basically um, fighting going on in the east. And the emperor, the Byzantine emperor, is losing ground and is losing battles and is starting to notice that these quote-unquote infidel who are beating his armies do not allow images, do not carry images. And at the same time, there's a lot of unrest among his priesthood because they feel that the common people have become overly reliant on icons and that they're in fact worshipping graven images, which is against the word of the Bible. So this very strong movement of what's called icon, um, iconoclasm begins to the extent where for nearly for several decades, they begin with um, destroying icons within churches, burning them, and going, to, going as far as uh, um, calling them out-and-out out out heresy. And this became a huge theological problem. And it, I mean, there, there was uh, literally, there was bloodshed over this and many, many beautiful um, artifacts destroyed at the time. <clears throat> Until the side of the priesthood who wanted to keep icons come up with this theological explanation. There was a tradition of the icon unpainted by human hands. And this is something that has been around in um, Greek, well, in Greek tradition for a very long time. It's this idea of um, an icon of the Virgin Mary, usually, or of, or of the face of Christ, suddenly appearing miraculously and considered to have been sent by God. 
So the theologians arguing for the icon said, hang on a minute, if, um, if this was sent by God, then it's not heretical. In fact, God is showing us the way. Um, but this idea of the icon unmade by human hands was considered to be an imprint. And this matters, an imprint, not a drawing, an imprint. And an imprint leaves negative space, and that space is somewhere for the spirit to enter. So as the statue was before it, and as the death mask was before, uh, in between. So what they did was they came up with these, um, this, this new code, if you like, this new canon of how icons should be produced. And they said, okay, it looks like God wants us to have icons and images after all, but we can't just paint them anyhow we want. We have to follow the images he left us. And so icon writing, it's called, not icon painting, icon writing, that's why it's called iconography, um, it became canonized in several ways. The whole idea being this inhabitants of the vessel, and we find this all the way back in Plotinus and the Amulus, we find this there. So the theologians basically took the thought and ran with it, and um, that's one of the reasons why today icons have, again, the stylized form was kept to always remind um, the faithful that this was not actually just an image. Uh, the idea of the imprint, they again expanded on it during Byzantine centuries. And if you've seen art, uh, Byzantine art from that time, you'll know this. They used enamels, they used precious metals, they built it up. It was three, it was relief work. It was three-dimensional. They carved in stone. So they used all these techniques and a lot of the enamel and um, precious stones and metals that they used were actually specifically selected to reflect the essence of whatever it was they were depicting. So to depict an archangel, what is an archangel? It's a creature of fire. It's a creature of um, basically of fire and ice. So why do they use enamel? Because you have to heat it and then freeze it. That's totally talismanic, yeah. Well, what else would it be, you see? Right. And yeah, so there you go. And um, leading on from there, even today in churches, there's a play on all the senses when you enter a church. And these icons almost spring to life with the gold, which is meant to be the promise of paradise, the gold of Eden. That's what that gold stand really stands for. Um, but there's this play on all the senses so that the true faithful will kind of enter this ecstasy. And when they approach the icon, only their prayers will bring that spirit to ensoul what they're looking at. Otherwise, it's just there for the next person to try to do the same. That was absolutely right. beautiful. <laughs> we could have done. We could have done. Thank you so much. We could have done the whole show just on on iconography. You can even cut it. I'm sorry. That was what you just got there. Was my I, I do this lecture several times a year. Same one. So what, what you just okay. got now. I do times a year. It was great. The yeah. <laughs> well, it makes so much sense because what you were describing in the Egyptian sense. Yeah, that's the Ba. The Ba is the living image. And the living image, as long as the Bob meant two things, it meant soul, but then it, like, like you said, it also meant uh, actual image or receptacle. 
and and it was the the car the car would animate the bar the car was the life force and it needed a boss like you can't have a car without a boss so it makes perfect sense and then what you're saying about byzantium makes sense too because of the platonic school uh that was operative that was founded by one of the byzantine emperors you know that michael salas came out of for instance that's right so yeah. it makes total sense that the neoplatonic theurgical uh sympathy would have been translated into into orthodoxy via that route everything but the way you brought it together it synthesized the, the ideas in a way that i hadn't seen them before I mean, but the, I mean, all of that is actually historically um, accurate. Let me just say, uh, you know, it's um, how that idea has kind of traveled the centuries and you won't get your average priest to admit to it. But um, the fact is, that's exactly how it works. And I mean, even if you do ask your average priest, what's an icon for? They will tell you it is for, you know, when you, when they when the faithful here kiss an icon, they are kissing the Virgin Mary, they are kissing that saint. That saint is in there, but it's in there because they have been able to install it themselves. And so, um, so yeah. do you do you attempt that with your art? Do you, are you attempting to uh, do some of that with your own art? I try to do something else because I will admit I am not religious in the traditional sense. So I, uh, it would be a lie to say that I do. Um, icons, it, it was it was a learning process for me. I kind of schooled myself because I needed to, if you like. But when it comes to my own art and my more freestyle, if you like, art, what I try to do is leave a vessel for the for ideas for the viewer's ideas. So I will put something there and I will put it there with an intention and with symbolism that has footnotes and stands up, but I leave enough space for the viewer to then bring their own experiences and um, whatever they're carrying around in their head to it. And if they engage, then they should be able to see a bit of what I put in there and then actually co-create. And a lot of people find that uncomfortable or too much like hard work. Some people get it, and when they do, it's magic. Um, and those who can actually read my symbolic vocabulary, people are well-versed. Like when I when I exhibit in the UK, this isn't usually a problem because it's usually my esoteric academic um, audience who sees it, and they, they know what I'm doing. But when I show it here in Greece where people have a different symbolic vocabulary in their heads – um, they will bring something of their own to it culturally. And actually that can be quite magical a lot of the time. So it's context specific as well, really. So that's what I try to do with it. Very interesting. So you are very busy. You are doing, <laughs> <I am. laughs> you are doing, you are doing all sorts of things. Um, you have two galleries. You're I an do. author. Um, you do speaking uh, at least somewhat occasionally. I mean, how, how often are you speaking and doing workshops? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, my life went on hold for the last year because, um, well, as you probably know, I recently lost my father and he was ill for several months. So um, up until that point, I was exhibiting maybe once, twice a year. And what I usually do is I'll do 
a trip that, that, that combines an exhibition and a couple of talks at least um, in different, it can be different locales, Sweden, UK, wherever I get invited. And um, now I'm also, now, like as of the last couple of months, I'm doing a lot of that here in Corfu as well at my second gallery, which is larger and more focused on modern art and it has quite an educational um, dimension to it as well. So I'm uh, collaborating with a local university on that and doing lectures there on all sorts of things. Um, but going forward, um, I've got two conferences. I'm speaking at two conferences this year and have some invitations for to do a couple of workshops elsewhere as well. Um, and hopefully at least one show, at least one show. Um, and I'm, I'm in very much of a transition period, but with a very, very kind of clear vision of where I want to take it. So it's about getting my life back on track and then moving forward. Um, there's a, it, it will be, be yet another Peladan collection this year, <laughs> artistically. Um, at least that's the one project because I cool. promised it. Yep, September in the UK, and I'm not going to give any more away about that right now. And um, after that, there will be a new project, which will be symbolic again, but drawing on quite a lot of other elements this time. Um, so. okay. Firstly, um, sincere condolences about your father. Thank um, you. Yeah. Um, what, so, I bring, sorry. I bring it up simply because some listeners who may have kind of seen announcements here and there may wonder that why I've suddenly gone dark or where on earth that book is yeah. I'm kind of you know the, the reason is that well life happens and yeah this is what happens so where can people keep track how can people keep track of what you're doing you've got different websites you've got different things going on um, okay, so my main website is sashachato.co.uk. I don't update it very regularly. I don't, I haven't had the time, but it's got a lot of my older material up, up until um, last year, really. And um, from there, I'm pretty active on Facebook. Um, I don't use Twitter. I don't use any of the social media. I don't have the time. Um, and people interested in my newest projects, and take a look at theattic.gr. That's the um, my main, uh, the large gallery, basically, uh, where most of my energy is going at the moment. And my Peladan, my poor Peladan website is still suffering from useless tech um, teams, um, but hopefully should be back online soon. So that's Peladan.net, but it's not up right at the moment. And you do have a book in the works. I have several books in the works. <laughs> But don't tell my publisher. <laughs> no, but um, seriously, the one that I think is the nearest to publication is my general overview of Peladan and his thought, but for the general reader. So it's not the heavy academic version. Um, it, it is accessible by, you know, even people who don't really have a background in esotericism. So people like yourselves who do might even find some of the explanations a little on the patronizing side, but I'm aiming low. I'm aiming at undergraduates, um, and up. Um, but then I'm also kind of, um, pe uh, teasing apart the puzzle of what Peladan actually said and taught. So that I hope by mid 2020. I hope by mid twenty twenty. Yeah, we're we're more than happy to promote promote that and uh, pretty much all that you're doing. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. We are very enthusiastic about your work and very grateful to you for coming on. We're, we're honored that, that you chose to hang out and talk with us today. Oh, I appreciate it. And thank you for being interested, really, and also for, yeah, understanding. It's nice when I don't have to explain. <laughs> so I, I really appreciate it, both of you. Thank you. Well, we hope that Sasha the Sphinx keeps up her work and <laughs> continues producing, you know, excellent art for years to come. Thank you. Thank you. I've never been called that before. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. All right. Thank you both, gentlemen. Have a good night, guys. Yep. See you. That's a wrap. Uh, so this is our interview with Sasha Chato, um, the prime scholar of Josephine Paladon, uh, also artist in her own right, and all-around cool person. We're totally grateful for her time and attention to our podcast. We were exhilarated by this interview, and it just left us with so much more food for thought in so many directions we felt that we could have gone if we had more time. What do you think about the conversation, Dominic? Yeah, I loved it, especially since I wasn't familiar with Peladon. Um, it was a great learning experience. And it's funny, he's uh, a guy, an occultist in the 19th century, and yet his cosmology and his ideas were reminiscent of what we have been talking about for the past 14 episodes. I felt there was some similarities with Zosimos, with um, what we had spoken about with Iamblichus, specifically with you know art, obviously, and Synthemata, their use in theurgy and in magic, um, the importance and the power of art in that way. Um, but also we had talked about um, with Greg Shaw, the icons Iamblichus was against, and also Zosimos were, were, he was against certain creators of statues and icons. And speaking with her, I kind of got a little bit of an insight maybe into what they were talking about because she had said that, you know, you go to Greece and there's all these touristy spots that are selling these cheap uh, knockoff icons. And she was kind of railing against that a little bit and saying how we, she should, she's trying to support the real icon makers who were putting like real work and artistry into it. A little bit reminiscent of what um, Iamblichus was saying. Um, maybe gives it a little context. Same with Zosimos. Zosimos was obviously an artist, an artisan, a craftsman, a professional. And maybe, you know, seeing these people out on the street selling cheap knockoffs was, was what they were kind of talking about. It's possible. That was just a thought that I had. I think you're right. Um, I think it's an interesting sort of, sort of symbolic continuance of the, um, the controversy that came later in, in Christianity, in Byzantium, actually, over, over icons. You know, it was a, it was a huge issue um, in the church and even more so in the Eastern church with the iconoclasts. And, you know, what you're saying sort of shows us that this issue was not necessarily a Christian issue or even an issue that came from the influence of uh, Muslim ideas, but it was an ongoing issue within Neoplatonism, really. That in itself is interesting because Byzantium was the last major stronghold of, of Neoplatonism. So if we think of it that way, you know, really what happened with the sort of uh, controversy in Christianity w was really 
again, the derivative influence of Neoplatonic thought uh, by the Byzantine school into Christianity. So that that's a that's an interesting thing to contemplate. Um, but yeah, I was really I was really interested. I, I'm always interested in hearing, hearing about Peladon. I've been very fascinated with him since my early 20s. Um, I kind of consider him a historically kind of a hero because he was one of those artists who was willing to not compromise his individual vision, not compromise who he was uh, for society, for peers, for anyone really. And because of that, he delivered something which was startlingly originally at the same time, uh, very much a product of its antecedent uh, antecedent movements like Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, her- Hermitism. And you see all of those threads in his work and thought. And it's also interesting because Peladon uh, was also, you could maybe say, really attuned to the Rosicrucian spirit. And some of his protests and disagreements with certain things in the esoteric world, I think, had to do with his desire to adhere to the spirit of the manifestos, the original Rosicrucian manifestos. And again, we can thank Sasha for these some of these insights because she really brought a lot to the table. And, you know, I, I it just left me wishing I could have just sat there in on a class of hers or something because I just feel like there's so much more we can learn from what Peladon had to offer us. And it's truly a shame that there's so little of available of his work in English. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's there's not much, but thankfully it sounds like she's working on a few different books. And so I think that's going to be a great introduction for a lot of people who aren't familiar with him and his work. And just that whole scene, um, the late 1800s in France. Which is a hugely inspiring, fascinating time. Um, and it might, I think anybody who investigates that scene will find it well worth their while. And also, Sasha's art is very cool. It, it really is inspired by that, that time and by Peladon and by by all, a lot of what we discussed here. And I think another valuable aspect of our discussion was just what symbolist art really is. And I think a lot of our discussion was valuable in that regard as well because uh, the symbolist movement has always been my favorite artistic movement. Clearly has strong uh, ties to the pre-Raphaelites, arts and crafts movement, you know, and so on and so forth. And uh, those movements had effects on society that we're still seeing today. And it's also interesting because those movements sprung up partially as a reaction to the industrialization of culture and society. You know, the arts and crafts movement, which was held very similar ideals to the symbolists, um, as we even heard in the discussion, it was a direct response to the Industrial Revolution. And and it was an attempt to go back to the earlier guild system, medieval culture, so on and so forth. Yeah, and hopefully this can provide some inspiration for people now because i think it's relevant just as relevant now as it was then um i'm also glad you brought up simon magus so that that was something i was thinking about as well when we were talking about um, peladon's handbook for men and handbook for women with the goal of uh uniting those uh kind of broken pieces 
between male and female. And that's like you had pointed out, that's what um, Simon Magus was doing as well. And you see that in Jung's work with the anima and animus, um, trying to reconcile those parts of ourselves. Um, I think that was interesting. And, and another thing that stood out to me that reminded me of Simon Magus was the, the way he carried himself. Um, I forget the Greek term, but it was um, the same way that Simon Magus was uh, acting out um, himself as, as Zeus oh, yes. and, and Helen as Athena. It's very reminiscent of what's going on here with Peladon um, being the, the priest of the Babylonian priest, I believe. And I, I believe the, the way Sasha explained it once was that you, you fake it until you make it is basically what the Greek term uh, translates to roughly um, where you embody what you want to become. Now, I'm, I'm, the only thing that doesn't fit is that I don't know um, if he had a female um, that he was working closely with. Paladin. That's a very good question. I'm not aware of anybody either, but Sasha would be the person to <laughs> probably answer yeah, exactly. that question. And if we had more time, maybe we could have gone into that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's good for this episode. Um, hopefully it sparked some some thought and some interest in people um, for an individual who is not talked about very much. And I'm also happy to expose people to Sasha and her work. Which is really very, it's it's groundbreaking, it's essential, and it's a breath of fresh air in the often retrodden ground of, of esotericism and occultism. You know, things come into fad, there's fads, and then... Uh, people sort of gravitate toward these topics and they can become tiresome. Um, and this is a topic that really is, has not been sufficiently explored. I mean, we could, whether we discuss Paladon or the, the early, the origins of the uh, French Gnostic church with Papu and Rico and Duanel, or whether we were to talk about the French Satanism, uh, such as, uh, Guzman's discusses in Labas, or we were to discuss the inner, the cross section between the French symbolists, artists, musicians, and poets, and the French occult scene. I mean, there's a really rich uh, culture there that we could look into, and that culture has has been esotericism, especially that of a Gnostic flavor goes back to the beginnings of the time of Christianity in France at very least. I mean, there were Gnostics in Gaul prior to uh, quote-unquote Saint Irenaeus coming there. We know that the, you know, the followers of Marcus, who was the student of Valentinus, were settled in Gaul. And then later, you know, there were um, the Cathars, of course, and the Templars. And uh, all uh, during that period, we have Manichaeans pr- pretty much present off and on in that area. And then later, we have, of course, uh, esoteric masonry, and, and then it led up to the period we're in. So France has a long history of occultism and esotericism that is, is largely neglected in the West. And I think that it's to our detriment that we ignore it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so everyone, support esoteric artists and maybe look into becoming an esoteric artist yourself. I think maybe that's, that's just another tool in your magical toolbox, um, the symbolic artwork. And I'm definitely going to start delving into that a little bit more. You can find us 
on where can they find us? Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, Facebook, um, all those places. If you want to get in contact with us, Facebook is the best place. We also have a Patreon. So if you like what we're doing and you want to support what we're doing, I can't promise you all sorts of cool stuff if you <laughs> plan to donate to us. Um, we're never going to have a members section. We're never going to keep part of our interviews from people so that we can make money off of them. That's just not the model we're, we're into going with. We're not, we have real jobs. So yeah, I, I don't have time for, for any of that stuff. You know, I'll try to add something eventually articles, things like that, maybe, but for now we're just too busy. But having said that, if you want to support us, that's the way to do it. We are trying to keep this going and there are costs involved with that. So um, any help definitely keeps us motivated to keep keep doing it. Um, I think that's about it, unless you have some amazing words of wisdom. Only that I think that people should make sure to check out uh, Sasha's work. It's uh, There's definitely some available online that will give you a taste. Um, there, She's coming out with the book. And, of course, if you're in Greece, you should check out one of her galleries. And also you know, check her art out because it's cool. It's, she prices it very affordably and it, I think you will appreciate it if you appreciate the show. Okay. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Please.